for medicine, you have to love the profession and you have to give back to the profession. This lady called Trudy Roberts, I remember at a time when I was working 120 hours a week and I'd been awake for you know, 72 hours without any sleep at all and fallen asleep standing up on a ward round. Um, you know, and now I was thinking, can I go, <laughs> go and join my mates in the city and earn more money and not work quite so hard? Um, and then she just gave us this amazing talk about the privilege of being a doctor and I was inspired again, you know. Welcome to Do The Job. Today we're in for an insightful conversation with Dr Chris Pierce, an esteemed foot and ankle surgeon based in Singapore. With over two decades in the medical field, Dr Chris unravels his journey towards specialising in ankle surgery, offering a glimpse into the remarkable path to the top of his profession. Transitioning from years of dedicated service in the public sector, he's established his own private practice, Altius. But Dr Chris's impact extends globally through the publication of over 80 peer-reviewed studies, authoring 10 book chapters and his frequent invitations to speak at international conferences. He's a guiding force imparting knowledge to surgeons both in Singapore and abroad, shaping the future of foot and ankle surgery. Currently, he serves as the international editor of Foot and Ankle International. In the demanding landscape of medicine... Dr. Chris Pierce navigates the challenges and stresses and offers invaluable insights that could serve as inspiration. Join us as he shares his experiences, wisdom and perhaps a few captivating stories as we join foot and ankle surgeon Dr. Chris Pierce as he tells us how to do the job. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So let's get stuck straight in, actually, with you and where you started with your career as an ankle surgeon. Can I just ask, when did you decide that medicine was the path you were going to take? Did you know ever since you were a little boy? or When was it? When was that moment that you thought, I'm going to go into medicine? Actually, I was a bit unusual in that I wasn't like that. Um, I, uh, I I wanted to be David Attenborough, actually. That was my plan. I was going to do zoology. And then uh, when I went to go and look around Oxford, they, uh, I discovered that 97% of zoology graduates became accountants. And I thought, well, I don't want to be an accountant. So <laughs> so then I decided that I should do medicine because I found that quite interesting. Um, and actually, it turned out all right, really, because I think a lot of the people that had wanted to be a doctor since the age of six were slightly disappointed by it, whereas I went in without too many expectations and um, found it all quite interesting really. And so you obviously didn't start off in the in the field of medicine thinking ankles is going to be my speciality. When when did that happen? When did you make that special pivot into ankle surgery? Yeah well you, so you have to do surgery first so general surgery first um, and I made a mistake in a sense in that I, I I didn't really think about being a surgeon I wanted to do something much more academic like um, oncology I was going to do oncology actually Um, and then uh, but later I decided to do surgery Um, so you have to do uh, what's called basic surgical training first so accident and emergency I did neurosurgery and abdominal surgery 
um, first, and then and then you apply for specialist training, uh, which for me was orthopedic surgery. And once I got into that, I decided early on that I would choose my subspecialty earlier this time, so that I wasn't um, you know I wasn't disadvantaged by not having chosen early. So I chose foot and ankle very early on, and there were a couple of people that kind of inspired me to do that. Uh, one was James Calder, and the other was a guy called um, Lloyd Williams in London. Mm. Um, so they were your mentors? Yeah, they were my bosses. When I was a, I was a registrar, they were the consultants. Um, and they, um, well, James was kind of my friend, but uh, Lloyd Williams was my consultant. And it, was for the, it was the first time that I really got to do any elective surgery. You know, as, as a junior doctor, you get to do a lot of trauma and broken bones and things like that. But um, elective surgery on the foot and ankle, such as ankle ligament surgery and bunions and things like that, was the first time I got to do do that. Uh, with his supervision obviously and is that a different pace when you've got elective surgery i can imagine the trauma stuff is all a bit full-on and with elective do you get sort of get to sort of just take your time a little bit more yeah definitely um you know the trauma of 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 course big trauma is quite difficult um but things like broken hips um are actually quite straightforward um and so that's kind of where you cut your teeth as a as an orthopedic surgeon um and then the, the elective stuff is a bit more precise, but, but potentially, and potentially has sort of higher expectations of outcomes and things. So, mm. tends to be done when you're a bit more uh, experienced. So there's no pressure release anywhere in this game, is there? <laughs> so, could you walk us through a typical day in the life of an ankle surgeon? Well, there's, there's, it's very different what I'm doing now because I've just started in private practice. Um, but previously in the in the university setting, of course, there was a lot more to it than just doing ankle surgery um, because uh, we had to do a lot of teaching and research and a lot of admin, which is one of the reasons why I left, actually, the admin <laughs> admin side of things. Um, but so these days I, um, I see patients in the clinic um, when they need to be seen and, and I do surgery when we schedule it. So that it's, it's a much less rigid uh, timetable now. So how often in the public sector compared to the private sector how often do you have to do surgeries so in the in the public sector i used to have an operating day um so was, i used to do a tuesday at Fong and a thursday at um nuh so i did two days a week where i was operating most of the day um and then the trauma would be done usually by my juniors as i was kind of explaining earlier um or i would you know sometimes have to come in if it was a bit more difficult whereas in the in the public sector, it's a bit more ad hoc. So I'd probably do four or five surgeries a week or maybe three to five surgeries a week, depending. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, this is might sound a very bizarre question, but do you enjoy the surgery? I or love it. You love it. So what yeah. do you love about it? I uh, I mean, genuinely, when I was training, I couldn't believe they were paying me, I mean, albeit they weren't paying me very much, but <laughs> I couldn't believe that I was being paid to do, to do to learn how to be a surgeon, you know. And I used to go into... Uh, the hospital and do the trauma list on a Saturday morning, even if I wasn't supposed to be working, uh, you know, just to get more experience because I loved it. And until my now wife told me to stop being such a geek, you know, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So, so yes, it is. It is good fun. I mean, these days it's a different type of enjoyment in that, um, you know, when you're learning, when you're training, it's such a steep learning curve, and you're always learning something new. Whereas these days, it's more about doing it as well as anybody could do Mm. listening to you talk i think me doing anything like that on another person such high pressure and expectation from the patient um it that in itself would stress me out so what kind of personality 
would you say you need to be to be any sort of surgeon? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the most important thing is to, you've got to love it. You know, it's there's again, I've had even my own kids, but you know, other people's kids coming to ask me about what it's like to be a doctor. There's a there's a lot easier ways to make a living, that's for sure. But it is fascinating. So as long as you keep that love for it, I think it's it's easy enough. You know, the first time you do an operation on your own with nobody more senior around you is is, is scary for sure. Mm. Um, and and new operations are quite scary. Um, but the, the more senior you become and the more experienced you become, you can deal with that a I, bit better. I can imagine you need complete confidence in well, they yourself. They say they say a good surgeon is sometimes wrong, never in doubt. one of the old adages yeah um but no yeah you do need a certain amount uh, and and actually if you become uh if you doubt yourself it's actually quite difficult Uh, there was a time when i had six weeks off between between jobs because i went from one training program to another and when i came back i i had to i asked one of my friends to come along and help me with really quite a simple operation just because i didn't feel confident to do it because I haven't done it for so long and that again that wouldn't be the case so much now because I'm much more experienced. How long have you been doing ankle surgery for? So ankles uh, exclusively for uh, about 14 years ankles and feet I do foot and ankle surgery and I'm going to still do the odd bit of trauma you know broken bones if I need to Um, but I electively I only do foot and ankle surgery now and that's been the yeah, well, certainly that exclusively foot and ankle's been ever since I've been in Singapore, really, mm. 10 years at least. So dealing with all sorts of patients, patients who are in distress, as I say, patients that have high expectations that you're going to really mend them and fix them, and sometimes that doesn't happen f- through whatever reason. How do you deal with, with that side of your job? Um, well, again, I think, you know, Foot and ankle surgery, most of what I do is not life and death to start with. So it's not maybe the same kind of pressure as the guy that did my mum's uh, esophageal cancer surgery. Um, but the uh, so again, I think the best way to approach it is to involve the patient right from the beginning. Uh, and again, one of my sort of stock phrases is this, this is, you know, nobody's ever died of a bunion. So it's, it, you know, it's up to you when you have surgery. It never gets so bad that I tell you, oh, you must have surgery. It's more like, you know, when you've had enough of it, um, these are the the risks of surgery and the, this is what the recovery is like and when you when it's affecting your life enough at the time uh to go through all that hassle and potential very small risks then then that's the time to do surgery so again we get you know i always try and get the patient involved as much in the decision making as possible so that gets it means that we're kind of working together to for, for a common outcome but yeah of course not everything goes right every time um Again, the, the absolute best way is to be completely honest with mm-hmm. the patient. Um, patients, you know, know that we're not, you know, machines. Uh, they know that humans occasionally don't have the best day in the office, um, and I think they understand that if, mm. if, if, as long as you're honest with them. Well, personally, yeah. myself, I've had a shoulder issue for a very long time, and when um, it was a physiotherapist that helped me recover from that, mm-hmm. and to this day, I just want to go and hand her a big bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates for making my life so much better so there must be those golden moments that you have in your career where people are just so thankful for the work that you've done on them yeah no it's very good actually and again in orthopedics and especially what what me and my colleague dr you know gavin o'neill do a lot of what we do is sports related um and so rather than trying to save people's lives we're trying to get them back to their activities and things like that so when 
when a guy says, you know, I just really want to be, be able to play golf again, and then three months after surgery he sends you a picture of himself on the golf course, that, that's quite a cool thing. You know, yeah. That happened just the other day, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so beyond the consultations and the surgeries, what else does your day encompass? Well, again, it used to be in the public sector. I used to do a lot of teaching, um, okay. both undergraduate and um, postgraduate, um, and a lot of research. I published 90-odd um, research papers and I had a lot of admin to do uh, these days it's really more you know, of course there's some admin around the new clinic um, but yeah I'll hopefully have a bit more time to do things for myself uh, you know in terms of sports and so hanging just out with walk, my kids walk us through the, the research side because obviously in your field things are always changing and you need to be up to date and you must be discovering things through your work that you do and you want to present that to the world. So walk us through that area of, of your job. Yeah, so I um, I was very interested in research, which was one of the reasons why it took me so long to go into private practice, um, because it's a lot harder to do research in private practice than it is in the public sector. Um, but we, um, we, we, I mean, the most impactful type of study is a randomized control trial um, where you have well, for example, I did one on ankle ligament surgery, and I was trying to prove that the minimally invasive surgery is as good as the as the open surgery. Um, and so we randomised patients into having one or the other. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, some of the data got screwed up because of COVID, because mm. uh, a lot of patients couldn't come back for their follow up. But um, it, you know, it basically proved that the minimally invasive one is just as good as the open one. And that so, kind of thing. So yeah. that changes practice a little bit. I just want to stick with that point because technology is changing and that must impact your field. And, you know, every patient would prefer minimally invasive procedure, I guess. Are you finding that you're experiencing different equipment and procedures and to make your job easier and more efficient? So actually, I mean, a lot of a lot of what I do is moving towards the more minimally invasive thing. It doesn't actually necessarily make my job easier. Often it makes it harder. Um, and, and again, minimally invasive surgery is, is great in some aspects, um, but there are several examples where it's actually not necessarily, just because it's new and, and um, sexy doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. A, a good example would be sort of anterior hip surgery. Um, but in the foot and ankle, yeah, a lot of the trauma that we do, especially calcaneal fractures, heel bone fractures, um, I think that's a huge advance, being able to do it through a smaller incision. That it, it, We used to do this enormous incision around the heel uh, that had about a 19% infection rate, um, whereas if you do it through a small incision, it's about 1%. But it's a lot harder to get the bones in the right place. So you've got to balance those things. I was literally about yeah. to ask you about why is it that minimally invasive is is harder so it's just more difficult to manipulate yeah you, you don't have the same kind of access you yeah know, um so but everything's about practice you know as long as it's possible to do if you practice it enough yeah. you can do it so what do you need to do to become an ankle surgeon walk us through those steps that you took to mm. get where you are today well first of all you've got to go to medical school um which again, when I applied for medical school, the, the the grade requirement wasn't quite as stringent as it is now. I think uh, um, I think so many kids get straight A's nowadays that they uh, 
I think you need straight A's probably to get into medical school now. It wasn't quite the same in my day. The only thing that you have to have done is chemistry. Um, mm. Otherwise, you have to do a pre-med year. So you do five years at medical school, um, and then you have one year as a what's called a pre-registration house officer. So you're working as a doctor, but you're not fully registered yet with the medical council. And then you go on to um, surgical training. So basic surgical training is three or four years in the UK. Um, and then you apply, and there's a big bottleneck at the next stage uh, to get into specialist surgical training. And for orthopedics, that's six years. Oh. And then you have to get a job as a yeah. consultant. Yeah. Um, wow. What, why, um, why is there a bottleneck? Because there's not enough training positions, mm. and there's not enough consultant posts either. When I, when I finished my training in 2010, I, there were 150 fully trained orthopedic surgeons in the UK that didn't have a permanent job. I think it's even worse now. Mm. I managed to get one and then moved to Singapore so. oh. <laughs> about six months later, which went down badly with some people. Oh. But yeah. When did you make the decision to specialise in ankle surgery during your medical journey? So I, I, I'll take it one step further back, if you don't mind, because it's quite a good story in a way. I, um, I, I was telling you we had to do this pre-registration house officer year. And so you do six months of, of medicine, so internal medicine, you know, whichever specialty they put you in. And then you do six months of surgery. So I, I did my medicine six months first. And I, did, uh, I worked for the professor of oncology in Manchester. And um, I really enjoyed it, actually, bizarrely, even though it, it could be slightly depressing. Mm. Um, but you, know, I, you could make a lot of a difference as a junior there because you have more time to speak to the patients. Um, so I did enjoy it. And, and I got on really well with the professor. And I was going to go down that road. And in fact, I managed to get a training program that was setting me up for that. And I went to my second six months in surgery, and uh, my my boss, well, my registrar was this guy called Jed Byrne, who is a legend of a guy. And he grabbed me by the ear one day and took me out to the to the doctor's mess and said, "You know, see all the cool people; they're all surgeons. See all the boring people; they're all medics." He took me to the car park, said, "See all the cool cars; they're all surgeons' cars." You know. And then he dragged me to the operating theatre and said, "Right, you're going to do this surgery." And it was an above knee amputation. So having never really held a scalpel before, I did the above knee amputation, sawed the bone, and he went, you're a surgeon now, Pierce? Yes, sir. You know, so then I, I, I resigned from the job that I hadn't even started yet to do oncology and then became a surgeon, uh, which took a bit of time because my CV didn't look as if I was heading down the line of surgery at that point. Yeah. Wow. And then so then later on, I, I, you know, like I said, I, I decided fairly early on to do an ankle surgery so that my CV looked like an ankle surgeon by the time I got to the end. Um, that is quite a story. Yeah. And I, I wrote to him recently, actually, and said, yeah, thanks. Yeah, he's a he, professor of breast surgery in Manchester. That he runs, and he's coming out here to lecture soon, so I get to see him oh, again. Oh, <laughs> great. Re- reunited. Yeah. <laughs> and did the op- the amputation go well? <laughs> well, it was for a patient that had really bad circulation, you know, um, so actually it was fairly safe to let me do it because it wasn't bleeding much anyway. <laughs> but yes, it's fine. Yeah, the patient survived. Yeah. He was there holding my hand, of course. You know, you know. Yeah. Wow. And you'd never held a scalpel before that no. time. No. That is jumping in at the deep end. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jed was there making sure I didn't do anything stupid, obviously. But this yeah. doesn't come in your training anywhere. Uh, well, I'd say I, I hadn't held a scalpel in anger. You know, of course, we had a we have a cadaver that we dissect for the first two years for anatomy class. So, of course, I had held a scalpel, but not not where it mattered that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah. 
Which medical specialities typically offer the higher salaries and what influences these income differences? You've kind of just said it, but if if you can elaborate any more on that. Um, Yeah, honestly, I don't think that very many people choose their specialty based on that. Um, People choose their specialty based on what they're interested in. Um, And sometimes people choose their specialty in terms of a lifestyle choice. Um, So, I mean, I could have done general surgery. I I really enjoy general surgery, which is abdominal surgery. And the really cool thing about that is you can go in in the middle of the night with your knife and save somebody's life, you know, uh, by you know stopping them bleeding from their stomach or whatever it is, you know, um, which is a great thing. But the trouble with that as a career is that you're needed in the middle of the night, mm. you know, well into your 50s, uh, which I didn't really fancy. Um, most orthopedic problems can be dealt with the next day. Mm. Um, but, yes, yeah, surgical specialties tend to be amongst the highest paid. Um, orthopedics is pretty high. Spine surgeons, especially in orthopedics, get paid very well. But you know, that's, that's, I don't think that's a, it's not really a consideration for most doctors. Listening to you talk, it's amazing actually, just how much you want to help people. Obviously, you, we all think that doctors have that kind of empathy, but how much is that a driver to you in your career? <clears throat> it is a driver, but actually, I think honestly, the most, the best thing is knowing that you've done the best job. And ideally, the best job that anybody could have done, not just the best job that you could have done. Um, and and the, the the motivation to keep up to date and that kind of thing is 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 as much down to that as it is down to helping people. And you are at the forefront. You are at the top of your career. Would you say? Would you say this is it, or would you say there's a whole ton more of stuff that you need to learn or do or accomplish? Yeah, I think I think that you know the learning curve has flattened off a little bit. Hopefully, you know, and and that's a good thing, really, because yeah. uh, um, I've been a consultant for twelve, thirteen years now. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think this gets to the point where you know I can still see properly, and I can st- I don't, I'm not shaking or anything yet, so I can still do the surgery, um, but I'm not in this steep part of the learning curve anymore. So and I've got yeah. I've done thousands of operations, so mm-hmm. so that you know, experience counts for more than anything. In, in any field, I think. And with your job, can you practice anywhere? Would you say it's a career that if you went into, you could end up anywhere in the world? Is it easy to transfer from region to region? Uh, yeah. Again, that's one of the reasons why I did medicine in the first place. Um, and I found out it's not quite as easy as I thought it would be. Of course, everybody needs doctors, but um, you know, not every medical degree is transferable. Um and uh, of course, in Singapore, they used to run a British system, so the British qualifications are recognised. But also, as a surgeon, you have to create clients as well. Um, we, we, you know, you need to get known in a place in order to get people coming to you for surgery, even in the public sector, not just in the in the in the private sector so it takes a little while to build a reputation for the gps and the physiotherapists and people who refer to you to know who you are and you know see some of the outcomes of the surgeries that you've done and so yeah it's not as quite as transferable as as i thought hmm. um there are other specialties such as anesthesia or what my wife does which is radiology which where you're almost like a service industry um so you don't have to you don't really need to find the patients yourself somebody like me would send the patient to you um so it's probably a bit easier to move around with that but i'm surprised about the public sector needing recommendations again i assumed that people just got sent to whoever was available but why do you need uh, to build well, up I mean, a record well, well you don't need it as such um you could 
but it, it helps it helps to be known yeah. and to you know because if, if the gp recommends you to the patient the patient already comes in feeling like you know this is somebody that they might be able to trust um, yeah. whereas if it's just a random guy behind the desk it might be different so you've worked in the public and private sector what's the pros and cons of both because you were in the public sector for a long time yeah i genuinely i think if it hadn't have been for the lockdown i probably would never have left um i i because i was so much along the academic tract which i've always been very interested in the, in the research um mm. so i was a, an associate professor i was sort of on the treadmill getting towards full professor um and I, it never really occurred to me to really you know go into private practice and used to call it the dark side you know private practice but um the more senior you get in any kind of institution, the more admin roles you get given. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time in meetings after hours as well as during hours. Definitely more time in meetings per week than in surgery. And after a while, that kind of got to me. And then when the, when the lockdown happened, uh, well, first of all, I went to go and work in the dormitories at the beginning of COVID, which was a little bit oh. scary at first. But then, you know, so I did about four months of that. But we were quite unbusy. You know, because all our elective surgery was cancelled or our elective clinics were cancelled. So I had a bit more time to think and kind of thought that I quite like hanging out with my kids and, and uh, mm. you know, maybe, you know, do I really need to publish the 91st paper? I don't know. But uh, you can still do that, I guess. Yeah, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy with, in, in private practice. I see. You kind of need the backing of the public. Well, there's a volume of, of work. Um, and mm. there's also funding and there's also the ethics involved. You know, the I ethics see. process for doing studies is actually quite rigorous and it's quite difficult in the private sector, I think. I can see um, that. So, but that's yeah. okay. I mean, I think I, I kind of feel like I've done my bit in that. Yeah. Um, and I used to do it because I wanted to prove I was right about things. And, and again, since the lockdown, <laughs> I've decided that I don't need to prove to everybody that I'm right quite as much as I did before. So, yeah, yeah. You travelled the world presenting your papers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Will you still do that? Is yes, and I'm still. I've got. Uh, I'm been invited to speak at the British Foot and Ankle Society in March, and um, I'm the president of the Foot and Ankle Society in Europe. Uh, so we've got a big conference in Milan in May. So this is about the private sector. Really interested to hear more about Altius, your um, private clinic, specifically. Could you highlight the aspects that you found relatively straightforward and the challenges that you encountered while setting up your clinic? Setting up a company in Singapore is incredibly easy. And the same day that we registered our company with Acra, I got a phone call from OCBC offering me $300,000 loan. And I hadn't even <laughs> asked for it. They just, I think they looked up the register of companies and said, well, we give 300 grand to new clinics, so would you like it? I was like, wow. Okay, so that wasn't too difficult, that part. Um, of course, the medical registration and things for the Singapore Medical Council is, as you'd expect, pretty rigorous, but fair. Um, the real difficulty was um, the everything has to be done in sequence, so, you know, you have to get your fire certificate before you can have your MOH inspection and you have to have finished all your building before you can have the fire, work, fire inspection. So everything had to kind of work on time and there's, there's like a one or two week lead time at each step. So there was a bit sort of um, worrying that we'd be able to open on time, but we managed to do it. We had a fantastic um, builder and clinic designer, uh, um, Mariko. She was superb. 
So and ha- she did everything yeah. on time, and we hardly even. And in fact, every time that my mate Gavin and I tried to make a suggestion, she went, "Uh, no," and uh, <laughs> she was right. So, so we just left her to it and did everything on time and really nicely. See yeah. things like this, I wouldn't even think about, but you have to design your clinic. Yeah, yeah, we got an empty shell, and um, my only contribution was that I, I wanted to have a corridor where natural light came through. Um, and a lot of people thought we were mad because that's it was it's basically about a third of the floor space because there's three windows so you have to you can't really chop the window off so it's quite a wide corridor but um, it's so nice mm. to have natural light coming through the whole clinic yeah so we try and make it as nice as possible and as nice an atmosphere and relaxing for the patients that's what it's all about isn't it yeah so now it's time for your quickfire round. Your biggest career regret? Well, I said I don't regret much, actually, to be honest. I um, I could have, like I said, I could have chosen surgery earlier and that would have made it easier to get onto the basic surgical training program. But I think it, I, I quite enjoyed the experience that I got elsewhere anyway. Um, and I think having a more broad experience didn't do me any harm. Uh, people always said that as soon as I got into private practice that I would have wished I'd done it 10 years earlier, but... Actually, I don't regret that either. I think if I'd done it earlier, I'd be always guilty that I hadn't given enough, given enough back to the profession. Um, even though, you know, there's obviously there's better money outside and on all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I don't, I don't have any big regrets, to be honest. Your career standout moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say about yourself, isn't it? Well, I'm I'm the chairman of this. Uh, European Foot and Ankle Society. I'm the international editor of the biggest foot and ankle journal, which is Foot and Ankle International. So those are kind of, I've won a few prizes for research and things like that, I guess. But actually, I think what I'm most proud of is some of the people that I trained. Um, I used to be the associate program director for the training program at NUH and uh, NUHS, and we employed more females in my seven-year tenure than had ever been employed up to that point. Um, and I think, you know, I think that and a couple of the trainees had kind of really been taught badly previously and were thought to be incompetent, and actually all they needed was to be taught properly. Um, and to see those people flourish later uh, was, yeah, probably the best thing. Your top tip to break into your industry? You've got to love it. When I when I when I was thinking about doing medicine, my the advice I was given by our family GP was that if medicine's the only one only thing you want to do, do that. If there's anything else you want to do, do that instead. <laughs> and actually, you know, at the time I thought that was weird advice, but actually, the more you get to know it, the more you think that's probably not such bad advice. Instead of asking what you earn, let's frame it in terms of your ride to work. Does your job afford you a bike, a taxi, a Toyota or Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> well, I ride a Ducati motorbike now, um, but it was a push bike for the first <laughs> 10 years of my career, that's for sure. <laughs> I, 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 I say we're not going to talk about money, but could you expand on how much, what part of your career would you say that you actually start seeing some decent returns? So that's the thing. That's And again, it's part of the advice to the youngsters because I, I think people care more about money these days than they did when I was a kid as well um you know you do two years longer at uni than most people it's a five-year course and then you don't start getting paid anything like decent money until you're a consultant so all your mates have been earning for two years 
you come out and they're earning five times as much as you for the next 10 years. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go into medicine for money. I think it's, you know, you have to love it, like I said. The interest uh, of it, yeah. yeah. And in terms of societal impact, have you changed people's minds, changed the narrative or changed the world? <laughs> I certainly haven't changed the world. Um, <laughs> I think some of the research, yeah, like I said, I've published 80-odd papers. I would say five or six of those have probably changed practice. Um, maybe not for everybody, but... Um, you know, just finding the best way to do things or the best way to treat certain conditions. That's what research is all about. Mm. I mean, a lot of research is not that impactful, but I think I've maybe got four or five papers that probably would have changed the way people do things. So we are on to the last section now, the future of your industry. We have actually talked a little bit about the advancements of new technology. Where do you see ankle surgery or surgery, surgery in general going in the next decade? So I think I think a lot of, of course, the AI issue is 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 something everybody's thinking about. Of course, um, I think for, for ankle surgery, the, more and more things will be done minimally invasively. I don't think that AI will have a huge impact on what I do for a while. Um, quite honestly, it's much more important to do the right operation than than the technical aspects of the operation itself. There's another reason why I quite enjoy foot and ankle surgery, actually. The decision-making is paramount and can be quite difficult. Um, the actual technical side of doing the surgery often isn't all that difficult. But if you do the wrong operation, it's not going to make the patient better. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't. I'm not sure that AI will take over what I do all that quickly, but it might, of course. Um, in the knee, especially, but other parts of the body, the robotic surgeries, you know, getting more and more popular. Uh, which you know, because the precision in terms of the way the way you cut the bone and things like that is obviously higher with a robot. But actually, nobody's really proven that it makes any difference to outcomes, you know. Um, so, I, I, again, I, I always think about this with robots. You, you tell it that you, you're going to cut three degrees off the tibia or whatever if you're doing a knee replacement, for example, and it cuts precisely three degrees. But you're the one that tells it to cut three degrees. If you tell mm -hmm. it to cut two degrees, it will cut two degrees. So if you were aiming for three and you cut two, it, it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really seen any evidence that it makes a lot of difference yet in terms of, of that. I think I think in other aspects of surgery, like cancer, where it's you know that Da Vinci robot, I, th I think probably does make a difference because uh, you can do things much more minimally invasively, cutting out cancers and things. But that's not mm. my field. But, mm. but yeah, that's so, that's the way things are going anyway. But I think it'll be some time before it impacts what I do too much. Well, this is the this is the argument that you're saying that you know decision making has to come from you, and you assess a patient, and every, you're weighing up loads of different things to make mm. that right decision. But people are saying AI could become that intelligent if it has enough information plugged into it to make those decisions. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm, I'm sure it could. But, you know, there is, you know, medicine is as much of an art as it is a science, for sure. And, you know, you have to listen to your patients. Um, and you have to really, and sometimes they don't tell you straight out exactly what it is they want. I mean, I think in what I do, they often do. But... You know, like the guy that was playing golf, you know, what he really wanted, he goes, will I be able to play golf after this operation? I'm like, yeah, I think you probably could, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but if it wasn't for golf, he probably wouldn't have had the operation, uh, you know. And if he was happy to just give up golf, he probably wouldn't have had the operation either. Yeah, the rest of his day-to-day -day life wasn't really that affected by it. 
So that kind of decision making, I think maybe AI might have to be around for a while to be able to do that. I don't know, but I don't know much about AI. Technological advances and methodologies. What one thing about medicine just won't change? I think that for most people, they're going to want to be dealing with a human being, aren't they? They want to have some empathy, some uh, you know understanding of what they're going through, some help to kind of make a decision. You don't, yeah, I, I I don't see how that can be taken over by AI. But then you know, I'm not an AI expert. Perhaps there's there's ways of doing that. But uh, yeah, I think it'd be a long time before we're obsolete in that sense. Um, I have to say, you know, certain things like reading a scan, I'm surely a computer will be able to do that better than a human at some point. Um, but even then, you you know, just because there's something slightly abnormal on the scan doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's causing the problem. You know, there's a lot more to all of that stuff. Mm. Um, so, and you know, this is why you know, I think people who go for whole body MRI scans when there's nothing wrong with them are, are mad because you're always going to find something that's slightly abnormal and mm. somewhere. And then you're going to have to investigate that, and you might end up having a biopsy or something. You know, you go down this big rabbit hole of of you know just you know, so there's there's a lot of interpretation of results rather than just having the result, and that's you know that's the answer. Um, which again, I think that would take a lot of nuance for an AI system to be able to do that. And, and you're absolutely right. In in when it comes to health, we all want to deal with a human being. I think, yeah. not a machine. Are there any additional insights or perspective you'd like to share about your career to help others that may be considering it? Actually, I, again, I, uh, I've been because I knew I was coming on this podcast. I've been thinking about it, but I think I think the biggest thing that I've realised recently is how lucky I was with the people that trained me. Um, and I think, you know, for medicine, you have to love the profession and you have to give back to the profession. And, you know, I was saying to my wife the other day, I remember this guy who gave us a talk about the, I call it the burning stick, but it's called diathermy. It's what we use to stop bleeding during the operation. And it's got a, it's got it's an electrical thing. And I remember him giving this talk where he's holding a light bulb in one hand and the diathermy in the other, and the light bulb goes off in his hand. And he's talking about how, you know, the circuit is safe as long as it doesn't go bypass the heart or whatever, you know, whatever he was teaching, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I remember another time, this lady called Trudy Roberts. I remember a time when I was working 120 hours a week and I'd been awake for, you know, 72 hours without any sleep at all and fallen asleep standing up on a ward round. Um, wow. You know, and then I was thinking, Good sod this, right? I, you know, I go, <laughs> go and join my mates in the city and earn more money and not work quite so hard. Um, and then she just gave us this amazing talk about the privilege of being a doctor and... I was inspired again, you know. Well, I'm pretty sure you're inspiring the next generation of doctors. Very much appreciate your time here today, Dr. Chris Pierce. Thank you. Thanks very much. 